Revelation chapter 8. Read with me Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb, Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints and on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I ask that revelation would be able to unveil the blindness in our hearts to see your great purpose for the world, the coming of your kingdom, and the power of your sovereignty, that we would see above and beyond all else Jesus revealed in these visions. May he be important in our lives, more important than any other doctrine we hold or any other comforts we cling to. We want Jesus to be exalted, and we want him to be the king of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, what is going on here? The Lamb opens the seventh seal. So let's recap a little bit of what we have done. In Revelation chapter 1, John gets his initial vision of Jesus. He shows up to John, who's in exile on an island because of the gospel. Caesar and his minions want to be the top dogs of the empire, and Jesus represents another kingdom. You can't have two kingdoms in one empire. So John, being responsible over churches, is exiled to this island. He gets a vision. Chapters 2 and 3, he writes to these churches he's in charge of to give the vision he's seen to these churches. So this revelation and vision comes to John personally from, from Jesus, and then he writes it in a letter to the churches, and that's the form we have it today. Then in chapter 4 and 5, we see John enter the vision itself. The first thing he sees in the vision is that he is in heaven and he's watching the one who sits on the throne in absolute control over what's going on over the earth. And there, the one who sits on the throne, that's his phrase for God, is being worshipped by all of heaven. And there's a scroll in his hand. And nobody can open the scroll. And John begins to weep until it is noticed that there is the lamb who was slain, who conquered and is worthy to open the scroll. And this lamb we see is Jesus. The lamb appeared as though it had been slaughtered, yet he was called the lion of the tribe of Judah to play on the phoniness of Caesar and his, his empire, that Caesar thinks he's a lion and he can just rip whatever he wants and take and control and punish those who come against him. But Jesus is the true lion who behaves like a lamb and is willing to give his life for people, not fight and take over and conquer. And so this is the lamb. He takes the scroll from the one who sits on the throne. Then in chapter 6, he begins to open. This scroll has seven seals, wax seals, closing it shut. He begins to open the seven seals. And as the seals are opened, things begin to come from the throne of God and do things on the earth. 
In chapter 7, there's a little pause in the narrative, and John gives us a little meanwhile, or behind the scenes, what has been going on prior to the opening of the seals, and he shows us these people who have been sealed. So while Jesus is opening seals, there are a group of people who are sealed. In other words, protected with the mark of God, there are 144,000 coming from 12 unusually named tribes of Israel, and then right after that, we see this great host in heaven who are standing before God, they are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and are in heaven forever in paradise with God and the Lamb. And that ends the parentheses. Pause, stops, the play buttons hit once again when we get to chapter 8, and the seventh seal is now opened. All right, there's your fast, quick, where we've been so far. Now, important to remember some of these key things. The scroll of the one in chapter five, the scroll of God who sits on the throne that the lamb Jesus takes to open. This scroll we identified as a title deed of some sort. It fits the Roman description of title deeds. The title deed seems to be of the earth for that is where Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. We'll see in the future of Revelation. So he's claiming the earth, which, which Satan tried to give to Jesus in the temptations. He refused them. Now he's taking the title deed of the earth He now owns the kingdoms of the world, and he's going to put them out so that he can establish his kingdom on the world. Yes, the readers would think, Roman Empire, that includes you. The, quote, eternal city is going to fall because the Lamb has taken the scroll. If you want some Old Testament background on the identity of the scroll as containing the ownership of the earth and his kingdom, look up and jot down later, look up later, Daniel 7, verse 14, Daniel 7, verse 14, Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, and Psalm 110, verses 1 through 2. And that's where you'll see that. Then the Lamb begins to open up the seals. Now, last week, I kind of went back and forth between different interpretations of the seals, and I apologize if it was confusing. I don't think I'm going to take that approach again. Uh, it kind of was hard for me to even go through. So um, let me summarize this. Uh, Calvary Chapel has usually taught that when the first seal is opened in chapter 6, you have the white the rider on the white horse come forth and he's the Antichrist. And then you see a lot of things happening as the Antichrist comes. So what you is in a sense have is you have a future period of seven years in which a ruler rules over the world with a one world religion. He's called the Antichrist and the world goes through all kinds of birth pangs and goes through chaos because he's in charge and the lamb is about to kick him out of the earth and take over. Um, I taught, however, because of the way I've read Revelation after I've been studying this book for a long time, uh, I, I tend to, I want to suggest that the seals are actually in the present tense. That these are not a future event, but they're happening now. Now, tonight we're going to get into the future part of the book with the trumpets. But I see the seals as occurring ever since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's what we saw in chapter 5 as he takes a scroll from the one who sits on the throne. That's his ascension. He went to ascend to the throne. He receives the kingdom. We're now waiting for him to finish opening the seals and come down and establish the kingdom. So we see these things happening, the seals, and you can go back and read them, and you can see some of these things are happening today. The difference is the language used to describe it is in Roman terminology. 
So, for example, the rider on the white horse would make him think of the Parthians, who were a terrible force out east on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. The Parthians were the image for them. For us, it would be an image of ISIS. It would be equivalent. So the seals are happening today. My reason for that is, if you want to turn, if you're quick, you can go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Matthew 24, verse 3. And I'm going to start reading. You can catch up as I go. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age. Jesus, when are you going to come? When is this present world going to be done and your kingdom going to be established? Well, Jesus answers in verse four. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. That could possibly be the white horse. Verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's the red horse. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. In other words, these things happen prior to the end of time. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's again the red horse. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. The famines alludes to the third seal, the, the black horse who rides forth. But verse 8 says, all these things are the beginning of the birth pangs. Then, verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That's the fifth seal. You may remember in the fifth seal, John saw under the altar many who were slain. That's what Jesus seems to be saying here, is many are going to persecute you, even kill you on my account. Uh, verse 10, and, they may f- uh, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, the key, and then the end will come. Now, if John, writing Revelation, knew of Jesus' prophecy here, then it would seem that he's mimicking it with the six seals, um, the seventh not being read yet, the the six seals, and he's saying, look, this is what Jesus said is going to happen in the present age right now before the end comes. And so I've suggested that the seals are happening today. We don't know where we are in that process, but, and it may not even be chronological. The point just might be all of these things happen as the seals are being opened up. Um, Next, uh, the sealed in chapter 7, there's 144,000, verse 4 says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, if you want details, get last week's message. Um, but I contend that this is not literal Jews of 144,000 in number, but rather that this is uh, an unspecified, it's a, it's a metaphorical number to say the complete number of God's people, and it's irrelevant to their race. 
that this could be Gentiles and Jews. It doesn't matter. It, it represents all of the people of God. Now, this would, if the seals are present tense, then this means it's us, it's you, it's all of the sealed of God since Jesus ascended into heaven. And we are protected. We are going to make it. God has put his seal upon us. Ephesians and 2 Corinthians both say that God has sealed us for the future inheritance. And these are they, or us. Now, um, verse 9 of chapter 7 then talks about a great multitude standing in heaven. And many, many, many commentators agree that they are meant to be seen as the 144,000 in a different vision. And often this happened in Hebrew writing, that you would sort of shift the gears and talk about the same thing. And so these 144,000 are represented by all the nations of the earth, it says in verse 9, all tongues, all peoples, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So, that may confirm that the 144,000 are an unspecified number of any race. So, it's the, all the people of God. Now, this brings up one, if this is true, it brings up one more interesting point. And I have to clarify now my fourth and final part of clarification and recap. The rapture. So, um, back in chapter 4, typically people will say this is where the rapture happens. In verse 1 and 2, uh, verse 1, he hears a trumpet or a voice like a trumpet come up here. John goes up into heaven, and they say it's a picture of the rapture. Uh, you may remember, I contended that that's not a picture of the rapture. And you, of course, you can get the CD and hear why. Um, so, yes, it's true. I denied that the rapture happens there. But I did not say, which was whispered around over the last couple of weeks, I did not say there isn't a rapture. That was not what I said. I just said that it's not taught here. I don't see John as trying to describe that here. The rapture, if you want to look at that, is taught in, in Paul's writings, and we kind of interpolate it into Revelation because we know about it, and we're like, oh, where does it happen? Well, I would suggest if you want to put the rapture anywhere, it would be in chapter 7, verse 9. You see the 144,000 sealed on the earth and protected, and then suddenly, a verse later, they're standing before the Lamb in heaven, and they've made it. Sounds to me like that could be us, already delivered. So, good timing, because the seals are about to be done. In chapter 8 now, we saw the seventh seals now opened. The scroll of the kingdom, he's claimed the earth, the whole thing's open. It's a done deal. The earth is mine. I'm bringing my kingdom down. All the kingdoms of the nations that think they're hot stuff, they're coming down because there's no room for all of these kingdoms. And we have already, uh, we're, we're out of the picture now, so we're with him. So, in other words, we're now seeing future Somewhere, maybe Richard's, was it Richard? Someone prayed that maybe tomorrow, hopefully tomorrow, if not tonight. That's when we hope the seventh seal will be opened and silence in heaven will happen for half an hour. Why silence? Because this, brothers and sisters, is the moment that all of creation has been waiting for since the rebellion of Adam and Eve. There was a beautiful creation in which God lived on the earth with humans Adam and Eve rebel against God's commands. They sin, and heaven and earth divorce. And ever since, we've seen the earth ruled by humans, not by heaven. But when Jesus takes the scroll and he opens the seventh and final seal, heaven is coming back to earth to rule and reign. And that's why 
John was weeping when nobody could open it. And that's why when the seven seals opened, there is silence in heaven because of the great anticipation that this day has finally come. So are you with me? If you follow my suggestion, we have been in the present from the letters to the churches and up to the seals, but the seventh seal's future. We're now entering future ground in chapter eight. And so here we go. The seventh seal's opened. And um, it's anticipation. We saw these coals of fire in verse five. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And you hear these peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So the earth revolts as this censer, which they would wave in front of the altar of God. Uh, as that's thrown to the earth from heaven, the earth shudders. Now, a lot of speculation. Of course, no one's clear, but I thought this was the most interesting thing I read. Israel's law in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, commanded that when a city of Israel turned away from Yahweh, from God, that they were, the other cities were supposed to take all of the stuff of the city, put it in the middle of the city, and torch the whole thing on fire. From, fire from, nonetheless, the altar in the temple. And here we have an angel grabbing the fire from the altar and throwing it to the earth, and we see some rumblings. Could it be that this is the picture of, like, when an Israelite city went astray, the kingdoms of the world have gone astray from God's purposes, and it's now time to torch it to bring the kingdom of God? Very interesting thought. But once the seventh seal's opened and the silence ends, it says in verse 2 that seven angels come forward and each of them are holding a trumpet. So there's seven trumpets and we're now going to hear one by one blare. And I want you to think about the picture. The lamb has come to the throne of the almighty. He's grabbed the scroll. He's opened the seventh seal. This is the title deed. This says, I claim the earth and I'm the king of the kingdom that's going to come to the earth. He's about to read a royal pronouncement over all the earth. So what do you expect happens? Like with any king who has an important announcement and needs the attention of all the earth, of all the inhabitants, they blow the trumpets. Listen up, a per, an important pronouncement's about to come. So the angels are going to sound seven trumpets to say, listen, O inhabitants, we have a royal announcement to make. And when the seventh and final trumpet finally sounds, the royal pronouncement is heard. And if you will look at it, go to chapter 11, verse 15. So the, the announcement trumpets are all done. And this is what we hear. So the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, here's the royal pronouncement. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's done. The seventh seal has been opened, and before he reads it, the seven trumpets have been blared. He now reads the pronouncement over the earth. I have come to reign, and nobody else stands a chance. And we'll get to that very shortly down the road. But I just wanted you to see where this is going. So the seven trumpets are about to sound. Now, um, let us go ahead and look at these seven trumpets. Verse 6 of chapter 8. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. 
So trumpets had a number of uses in Israel's time. First, they were used in the temple for worship. Specifically mentioned, uh, every time they rededicated the temple or dedicated the new temple, um, they would blow trumpets as part of the worship ceremony. Interesting, if heaven's coming to earth, the kingdom's coming, then obviously the earth is going to become the new a worldwide temple, and there's worship trumpets to be blown. This is God's. He's rededicating the earth as his once again. Um, another reason trumpets were used in Israel was to rally the armies. And interestingly, isn't it, that there are seven trumpets. The one place we see seven specific trumpets in Scripture is when Joshua leads the armies against Jericho, and they blow seven trumpets. And that's when the walls fall flat. And so it could also be a picture of the kingdom's coming. We have to get the Jericho's to be leveled in order for the kingdom to be established. Or, but, and um, probably the point here is that trumpets were also used to sound an alarm. They were, they were to alert you, to say, hey, sound the alarm, wake up. That was in Joel 2, verse 1. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, uh, the prophet there says, sound the trumpet in Jerusalem, let everyone know judgment is coming. And so here we hear the trumpet sounding seven times to say, the lamb has taken the scroll and he's about to read the pronouncement over the earth. Be warned, O peoples, because if you're not on his side, seven trumpets from now, it's going to be too late. So let's now talk, how does, um, how do the different people interpret these seven trumpets? Well, the futurists, whom we are, the Calvary Chapelites, see these as literal catastrophic events during the seven great year tribulation. Antichrist is reigning over the world for seven years. These are seven very literally read catastrophic events. So you try to, we'll, we'll, we'll interpret it as we go. Um, if you're reading it, Revelation as interpreted in the past, as it all happened way back and it's already fulfilled, then you would say that these trumpets are describing the downfall of the city of Jerusalem. Very interesting view. We're going to talk about it. And then if you're one of those people that try to see Revelation as always applying all the time, it's just repeating itself over and over through history, then you're basically going to say that these trumpets are plagues repeating throughout history and warning humanity to repent. And some people even try to apply it to climate change. Some of the trumpets you see are affecting the earth. And it sounds like some of the things that, if you buy it or not, uh, that climate change is claiming to be happening to our planet. So that's some of the ways that it's interpreted Um, All right, what I want to propose to you guys is that this is showing us a warning. It's going to use, okay, you got to track with this. So um, it's going to use past events to warn us of future events, Okay. It's going to use past events to warn us of future events. In other words, these seven trumpets happened already. But they're going to happen again. And the reason that they happened already is to warn us of what's going to happen again. And that John knows this full and well. He's, he's talking about something that happened in the past to warn that it's going to happen again. Now, um, what I'm saying is that Israel in Scripture has always been a blueprint for what God is going to do with the rest of the world in general. For example, 
God saves Israel specifically from Egypt. He claims them, he cherishes them, he saves them, he makes them his people. Because God always planned to save the rest of the world generally. Israel became that precursor, that blueprint for what he was going to do in the future. Also, on the flip side of this, God judged Israel and Jerusalem back in the Old Testament with the Babylonian Empire. He judged them in the past specifically because he's going to judge the rest of the world generally when he comes back. So Israel is always that blueprint and precursor for what God is going to do again. So here's what we're going to look at. The seven trumpets happened in the fall of Jerusalem And John's going to talk about that fall of Jerusalem to warn the rest of the world what God is going to do once again in the future. Does that make sense? The fall of Jerusalem was a precursor. It was a warning for what's going to happen when the Lamb opens the seventh seal and comes back. So we're going to look at it both ways. And I think you will find by the end, hopefully, you're going to find this very compelling. i got to hurry. So let's start with a backward look at the seven trumpets. Backward look. Let's look at them as talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Remember, John's writing in the 90s. The fall of Jerusalem was in the 70s. So he already knows about this. He's using these events to say they're going to happen again. But let's look at it backwards. The first trumpet. Let's go. Verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So, the land and the trees suffer and are burned. Well, when the Roman armies marched against Jerusalem, beginning in AD 66 and ending in AD 70, one of the things that they did was they chopped down all of the trees around Jerusalem up to 11 miles around Jerusalem in order to build their siege ramps. And this could be what it's talking about. Now, uh, if you go to, Jer- to Jerusalem today, you'll notice it's basically in the middle of wilderness, desert land. It wasn't always that way. Jerusalem was once in the land of milk and honey, right? It was a very fruitful area. The reason it's sparse today is because of the Roman invasion, so Josephus writes this. This is Josephus is that historian who is a contemporary of John the Apostle. Josephus writes about the war and says, "The Romans cut down the trees that were in the country that adjoined the city Jerusalem, and that for roughly eleven miles around. And truly, the very view itself of the country was a melancholy thing. For those places which were before adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become a desolate country in every way, and its trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change." For the war had laid all signs of beauty quite waste. Trumpet 2, verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Jot down Jeremiah 51. Verses 25 and 42. Jeremiah 51, verses 25 and 42. Very important. In those verses, the prophet Jeremiah talks about the future fall of the Babylonian Empire, back in the Old Testament, 
and uses this language to describe the fall of Babylon. A burning mountain being cast into the sea. So, what is John saying? John is saying that Jerusalem is going to be cast into the sea like Babylon fell once Jerusalem's going to fall. Now the burning mountain, Mount Zion is God's mountain. It's on fire. It's being judged, being thrown into the sea. The sea was a picture of the Gentiles and the Jews were scattered throughout the Gentiles. They were lost in the sea after the mountain was thrown into the waters. And so that's how uh, they would interpret this in the past. So one uh, thing that Josephus actually writes regarding the sea becoming blood, how does that make the sea become blood? Well, quite literally, actually, um, when the Romans defeated the Jews, they chased the Galileans into the Sea of Galilee in one of the battles, the Sea of Galilee up north in Israel. And there was a, I read some of the accounts, kind of gruesome, the, the slaughter that they gave the Jews as they're swimming in the Sea of Galilee. They just waited for them to come out and they shot them or they butchered them as they came out on shore. It was very brutal. And what Josephus says, and the result of this is this. He says, One might then see the lake all bloody and full of dead bodies, for not one of them escaped. And a terrible stink and a very sad sight was there on the following days over that country. For as... For the shores, they were full of shipwrecks and of dead bodies all swelled. And so that could be what the third of the sea being turned into blood and shipwrecks and things be referring to. Very interesting that that indeed happened. Third trumpet, verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Well, if you have a bunch of dead bodies soaking up the Sea of Galilee, and that water runs down the Jordan River to Jerusalem, your water is poisoned, and you're going to either get very sick or die. Um, however, this is probably referring to Exodus 15. After Israel crossed the Red Sea, they wandered through the wilderness a little bit, and then they came to the place of Mara. You might remember the waters are bitter. They drank the water and spit it out. That's what wormwood means. It means bitter. Then Moses threw the tree in the water. The waters became sweet, and they were able to drink. And God says to Israel, if you obey what I command you, none of the curses, none of the plagues and diseases that were on Egypt will I ever put on you. Well, this trumpet is saying that that is reversed because Jerusalem has indeed disobeyed God and they crucified his son. And so now the sweet water is being made bitter again and the, the diseases of Egypt are coming back to visit the Israelites, which by the way, Deuteronomy promised would happen if they disobeyed God. Deuteronomy 28, in that chapter, a lot of stuff in that chapter, it says that the diseases of Egypt will revisit Israel. And that seems to be what this trumpet is talking about. The Jews dying and getting sick. Fourth trumpet. The fourth angel, verse 12, blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. This one um, we kind of talked about last week already, but if you will jot down Isaiah 13, Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. There are a plethora of other verses, but that will suffice because we're short of time. Um, 
The Old Testament often used the heavenly bodies being darkened as a symbol for the fall of rulers and kingdoms. So this trumpet is probably saying that the rulers of Jerusalem are being assassinated and the kingdom of Jerusalem is going to fall. Um, and many, in fact, were all the Herods were either exiled or assassinated. And the high priests, they went through a slew of those. Uh, often zealots would kill the priests and the high priests. All right. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets, that are the three angels are about to blow. So you thought the first four were bad. The last three are worse. The first four affect the earth. I'm speaking ahead of myself. I'm not going to say that. Erase. Okay. Um, what do we got? Okay. Boy. Okay, here we go. The next ones. Um, Chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass, which locusts usually eat green stuff, but these locusts don't harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Whoa, holy moly. So now these are lo- these are man-eating locusts. Five, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So what do they look like? Verse seven, in appearance, the locusts were like, it's like a nightmare. They were like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name, this angel, in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Whoa. So, this locust invasion, you guys want to hear the future, like, what's that look like in the future, don't you? Uh, well, if this, we're talking about the fall of Jerusalem, this is very interesting. It's probably a vision of a demonic horde invading Jerusalem. Now, it's coming out of the pit, and it can't hurt the sealed ones, right? So, these must be some sort of demonic force, because there's spiritual elements here. And they have this leader, who might be Satan, or might be one of his 
head hunchman, who knows? But the locusts are coming in, and I would have thought, like, well, okay, that's a cute interpretation, until I read a historical account from Josephus, and literally the Jews, during the siege of the Romans, as the Romans are surrounding them from AD 66, and finally broke through the city in AD 70, it's a long siege. The Jews literally acted diabolical, they had diabolical actions. They acted demon-possessed. It was crazy sounding, and it seems that they unleashed, God unleashed some demons to further the judgment of his people. Here is what happened according to Josephus. Violent mobs attacked each other. Jewish mobs attacking Jewish mobs inside the city while the Romans are surrounding you. Multitudes followed after false prophets and messiahs. Desperate, uh, there were desperate chases for food, like wolves after the only piece of bread, and they're ripping each other apart to get to food. There were mass murders, executions, and suicides among the Jews. This isn't even Roman instigated. The fathers were slaughtering their families because maybe they weren't zealous enough to stand up against the Romans. Mothers were eating their children. And the zealots, who were those who were leading this whole thing, the zealots dressed as and imitated women both physically, socially, and sexually. So, I spared you the actual account, but that's in a nutshell what he talked about. It sounds to me like the Jews in this time got extremely demon-possessed and went crazy and into a frenzy as the Romans were pressing in. Now, Jesus did warn of this. In Matthew 12, verse 43, you might remember the parable where he says uh, something to the degree of... Because you aren't accepting me, I'm getting there. Um, here, I'm going to read it. Matthew 12, verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. 8070 is within a generation of Jesus. And he's saying, look, I'm doing stuff. I'm bringing my father's kingdom to you and you're rejecting it. I've cleaned out, if you will, the demon of unbelief, but you still don't believe. So guess what's going to happen? That demon's going to come back with more demons and he is going to make your state worse later than it is now. You think the Romans ruling you is bad? Wait till you're under siege by the Romans and the Jews start killing each other. And it was so bad that many people preferred to leave the city and be killed by the Romans than endure the conditions of the city itself. Yet they couldn't leave because the Jews had them under guard. That might be what it means by they yearned for death but couldn't die. Well, sixth trumpet, verse 12, 13, excuse me. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns on the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. That's a specific time. In other words, God has a designated time for this to happen. The number of mounted troops, verse 16, was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. 
And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. And by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horse is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. Now the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Remember, the trumpets are warning, hey, king is coming. They said, whatever. Nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. So the Jews, of course, did not repent. And that's why Jerusalem fell. That is reading it backward. Now, who is this invading army? It's believed. So Trumpet 5 is an invading army of spiritual warriors affecting the people, demons. Um, this is physical army. This is a real army. Probably the final Roman uh, troops that came and actually demolished the city itself. They came, some think, maybe with some group over by the Euphrates River and then came down to Jerusalem, and that was the end of the city and, of course, the Jewish state until, until our recent resurgence of Israel. Um, that's how you would read it in the past. Now, Jesus did foretell the destruction of Jerusalem within a generation of his hearers. Um, that's one way you could read it in Matthew 24, verse 34. Surely none of these things are going to happen, or uh, these things will happen before this generation passes away. And so that could fit with what he had said. Now, we are technically out of time. So I think we'll have to save looking at this in the future perspective next week. Oh, bummer. Got you guys on the edge of your seat, and now we have to end up. So, um, but I want to remind you before we get there that um, we looked at this in the past because it's a model of what had happened. John, remember, looking back 20 years from when he's writing, the fall of Jerusalem is a pattern for what God is going to do with the kingdom of the world. The fall of Jerusalem is a pattern for the fall of the world when the Lamb finally opens the seventh seal, blows the seven trumpets, and comes to earth. So, as trumpets are, they're warnings. They're saying, wake up, O earth. Of course, for Jerusalem, it's trying to wake them up. But now for the earth today, wake up and see who has the scroll and whose kingdom will be established. It's not going to be America and it's not, it wasn't the Roman Empire. It wasn't the Jewish Jerusalem. God has a kingdom. And C.S. Lewis says this, I thought it would be very good for us to think on as we end. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. In other words, when life is going good, it's hard to sometimes hear from God. But when life is going really, really poorly, he speaks crystal clear. And here we have, as we're going to see next week, the world in its aches and pains and the trumpets are warning. And God is basically, sh you can't get louder than the trumpet. He is shouting at the earth, wake up to what's coming. And tonight, some of you might be at a place of pain or discomfort. 
And I'm not saying that God has hurt you to get your attention, but he's using perhaps your pain to get your attention. Maybe he's shouting through the trumpet and he's been trying to get your attention and now's the time to hear him. I would invite you as the worship team comes up to lead us in a communion song that before you get communion, make sure that you hear God's voice in your life. And that if he's trying to get your attention, don't ignore it. Don't be like these sinners who idiotically in verses 20 and 21 refuse to repent. There might be something that you're missing out on that God is asking for you to wake up to.